Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, October 24th, 2021. It focuses on Jesus's forgiving nature as revealed in Mark chapter 2. The message to all who will listen is forgiveness is the most important gift God gives his children. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and what you desire to accomplish through it. And I pray that your spirit would do everything that you desire. Pray that we would hear and be obedient, that we would be submitted to you, and that your will would be done perfectly here on earth as it is in heaven. We submit to you as king of our lives and trust that you're going to lead us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So all of my life, I have had to deal with folks mispronouncing my name. Not Mike, of course. That's not a problem, usually. But I'm talking about my last name, Neifert. A little more than half of the time, I'd guess, someone who's new in my life looks at N-E-I-F-E-R-T and says, Neifert. I usually correct them, it's Neifert, and just move on. Occasionally, they continue to get it wrong. About two weeks before we were moving away from our first church back in Indiana, there was someone who introduced me to a newcomer at church as Pastor Neifert. I shook my head and moved on. Most people just call me Mike because it's easier and they don't have to use the N-word, right? <laughs> Mispronouncing my name is not that big a deal to me. It's certainly forgivable. I have certainly slaughtered other people's names and hope for grace. Uh, so I give grace. I correct them only so that my new friend has a chance of getting it right, maybe sometime in the future. But there are other things that happen in my life, and maybe it's happened in your life as well. People do us wrong in little ways all the time. They cut in front of us in the grocery store. They change lanes without signaling on the highway. They let their dog poop in our yard and walk away unconcerned. They take the last piece of chicken that we were reaching for with our tongs from the other side of the buffet. These things might annoy us a little bit, but they're forgivable. Sometimes people do us wrong in bigger ways. They spread lies about us. They steal from us. They kill people that we love through malice or negligence. They leave us for a new spouse. They abuse us in one way or another. And what do we shout? Unforgivable. But God says forgivable. Every one of these things, forgivable or we are all doomed if the horrible things others have done to us cannot be forgiven, neither can the awful things that we have done to them. Now, let's talk about our culture for a second. What does our culture teach us to do when someone does us wrong? Get revenge. Get them back. Every action movie, every suspense thriller, every true crime TV show drama is about the good guy who gets even with his wife's murderer or his daughter's kidnapper, puts the evil gangster down with some damning quote and a single shot to the head. That's the plot of almost all the movies, right? 
the lighting and the background music and everything that follows this climactic scene tells us that we've seen something good. That the right thing's been done and we smile as the hero walks off, gun still in his hand, out of that dark warehouse into the bright light of day. All is right with the world. Why do we applaud what God despises? He warns us in his word to leave vengeance to him. As early as Leviticus 19.18, we hear him saying, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. In the New Testament... Toward the end of Romans chapter 12, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, wrote these words. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So God will make right what we cannot make right. He will do so rightly and justly. We can trust him with all the slights that we have suffered. We can trust him with all the hurts that we have endured, all the sins that have been committed against us. We can trust him enough to help us to forgive the unforgivable. His grace makes sin forgivable. As you may recall, we have begun a chapter-by-chapter journey through Mark's recounting of Jesus' life story, focusing not so much on what we can apply to our own lives, but examining, rather, Jesus' character, who he is, what he's like, what moves him, what makes him act as he does. And last week in chapter 1 of Mark, we learned about Jesus' empathy toward us as we're tempted, and we talked about his compassion toward those who are dealing with life's difficulties. Those of you who were here in person last week will recall my wife's additional information on the word compassion during our sharing time after we had gone offline, and she noted that it's a feeling which compels us to take action, to alleviate pain, to solve the problem. Understanding compassion in this way makes me even more grateful that God is compassionate. He just doesn't feel sorry for us, but he does something about it. I'm thankful that his compassion compels him to act. Today we're going to move on to Mark chapter 2. And in this chapter we're going to see what comes out of Jesus when he encounters sinners. Since we're sinners... All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Since we are in that boat, this info is important to us. We want to know how our interactions with him are going to go. Before I talk to you about what I found concerning Jesus' character in chapter 2, let's read it together. As I did last week, I have invited someone to come and read the chapter for us so that we can together see who Jesus is, how he acts, and what his character is like. 
And when my wife is done reading, I'll talk to you about the things that I spotted this week. But as I mentioned last week, the way you should read God's Word is to listen to what the Spirit's saying to you. So there may be things that God says to you that I'm not even going to cover. So listen to what the Spirit says and hear His inspired words. My wife's going to come and read. You listen to the Spirit behind the words, and we will pay attention to what God says. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teacher of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked the disciples, Why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new patch will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into the new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisee said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, 
He entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for men, not men for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Before I jump into Jesus' character, I want us to note a most amazing thing about Jesus. He knows everything. He can perceive things you and I cannot. Take a look at verse 5. Jesus sees faith. He sees it in the paralyzed man. He sees it in his companions. I can see good deeds. You can see good deeds, which may or may not be evidence of faith, but I cannot and you cannot see even the tiniest speck of faith. Can you see faith, big or small? Jesus can. And if you skip down to verse 8, Jesus knows what people are thinking without them telling him what they're thinking, without them giving him a peace of mind. In this case, it's the thoughts of the teachers of the law that he discerns. You look at a person's face, I look at a person's face, we listen to their words, we observe their body language, trying to figure out what they're thinking, but you can't actually know their thoughts. And quite often when you try to read people's minds by looking at what they're doing, you get it wrong. What you and I find impossible, Jesus does in passing. He knows what's in a person's heart. He knows the words rumbling around in their heads that don't come out of their mouths, and he calls people out on their stray thoughts. You remember what we discovered last week, that the Son and the Father are the same? That what you see Jesus doing is what the Father is doing, and what you see the Father doing in the Old Testament is the same kinds of character traits that we're going to see in Jesus so if you know that, then you know that the Father and the Son both are all-knowing. They're able to perceive those things which we cannot perceive. God knows all. He sees what's in a man or a woman. That's why he can judge every person rightly. You know very little. I know that's a hard thing for the know-it-alls in the room, but you know, you know very little. I know very little. You see only what's presented to your senses. That's why you and I are not allowed to judge people. You do not know enough to condemn or commend in reality. God, who does know enough, opts to forgive every time that he sees faith. He takes care of the sin problem for every believing man and every believing woman. Here in Mark chapter 2, he looks at this paralyzed man, a guy who can't even get himself to Jesus without a little help from his friends, and he does what's most important. He forgives the man's sins. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's what he says to him. Do you think that the man was disappointed when he heard these words? What about his friends? Are they a little miffed? Are they thinking, what in the world? We came here for healing. Now, I don't know what they were thinking. Mark doesn't tell us, and I'm not God. What I've observed is this. Sometimes we are more concerned about the physical maladies that we encounter in our lives than we are about the sin problem that we have. We stew and fret because God doesn't heal this disease or that disease or whatever's going on in our lives. The way that we think 
he should. We pray earnestly for Aunt Matilda's bad back, but seldom ask God to bring her daughter Maggie to faith in Christ. Now, it's not that the physical discomfort that Aunt Matilda is experiencing isn't important at all. It obviously is. It's that we forget Maggie's lostness is by far more important. The eternal destiny of every person is most important. Your sins are forgiven is better than get up, take your mat, and walk. I'm not condemning you for concerning yourself with the injuries of family members or their illnesses. I'm simply inviting you to pray more regularly for your friends and family members who have no faith in Christ to carry both their physical needs and their more desperate spiritual need to Christ and to the Father to pray what's most urgent. We've kind of been running around this for the last minute or two, so let me make a clear statement about Jesus' character. Jesus is forgiving. He always forgives those whose faith is in him. He forgives, and 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 he forgives. Have I said it enough? You got it? You don't have to convince God to do it. You don't have to convince him that you're good enough for him to do it. You don't have to be good for a month or two after each incident in order to earn or re-earn forgiveness or forbearance. He forgives. Forgiving is part of who God is. The teachers of the law knew that God was a forgiver. That's why they were thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? Listen to what John wrote concerning this particular character trait. In 1 John 1, as this disciple is addressing the church, he writes these words about God's nature. I'm reading 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Here's what it says. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make God, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So if we are in fellowship with God, he purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I started out this message with a short bit about forgivable and unforgivable sins as we define them. Completely man-made categories, by the way. What we find impossible to bear, God in Jesus bears. He forgives the most horrendous atrocities when a person honestly admits their fallen nature and asks in faith for his grace and his mercy. Those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, don't you every once in a while think of the terrible things you did when you were younger Or maybe those things that you did more recently and just shake your head in amazement. God can forgive that. Wow. The unforgivable is forgiven. 
All the guilt is gone. You are pure and blameless before God. God has made you righteous. Isn't that crazy? Because you know all the stuff you've done. I know all the stuff I've done. Wow. God can cover that. God is, in his nature, forgiving. He is so forgiving, he's willing to associate with those whom others despise. He hangs out with those people. Isn't that what you see in verses 13 to 17? He invites the scum of the earth tax collector to join his inner circle. He says, follow me, and Levi follows. Remember that Levi is better known, probably, by the name Matthew. We've just covered his gospel. He's the guy that penned that first book of the New Testament that we covered in the first three quarters of this year. No one else liked Levi. He was hated. Jesus loves him and welcomes him. And then Levi, who seems to understand what's going on, in turn invites a bunch of undesirables to his house for a party. Dinner is served, and guess who else has been invited? It's Jesus. He's there rubbing shoulders with the town drunks and the floozies and the 'er ne'er-do-wells. Scandalous! Jesus gets called out by the teachers of the law. They want to know why he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus' response is the kind of response you'd expect from someone who is forgiving to the core. Read his words with me once again in verse 17. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In order to forgive sin, God has to associate with those in need of divine pardon. Sinners, those who fall short of God's glory, need forgiveness, and Jesus willingly hangs out with them. If his reputation takes a hit, so be it. Sinners need saving, and this Savior goes where they are so that he can save them. If you're afraid that God cannot forgive you for what you've done, look at who he is with all the time. It's the people who are a mess who can't get it right, who do the wrong thing more often than not. If he can forgive those people, he can forgive these. He can forgive you. He can, and he will. If you confess your sin to him, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. All right, back once more to the forgivable and unforgivable categories that we've created. If you've been forgiven your many sins, some of which others might consider unforgivable, doesn't it make sense for you too, in turn, to forgive the unforgivable in others? Jesus seems to think this makes sense. Matthew records Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Listen to him as he speaks. This is Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought in to him. 
Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Verse 28. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him. This is going to sound familiar. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Forgiveness is not optional for those whose faith is in the one who is by nature forgiving. Those who have been given grace are to give it away freely. We are to forgive all because we have been forgiven all. Now, I know there's a lot more about Jesus in Matthew chapter 2. But is there anything more important to our life with God and with each other? If God is not forgiving, do we even care that he's kindly given us the gift of Sabbath? Without forgiveness, there's no rest, there's no peace with God, there's no reconciliation with others. I'm thankful that Jesus is forgiving because I need forgiveness. I'm thankful God's people are with the Holy Spirit living in them and living through them a forgiving people. Again, I'm thankful because I need forgiveness from people all the time. C.S. Lewis once said, to be Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Is there some unforgivable thing you need to forgive today? Have you been holding a grudge for years? I urge you to release the person who sinned against you so that you can be free. As a way into our time of silent worship, that moment where we get to interact with God and respond to what he said, I want to invite you to pray the Lord's Prayer with me. The words that Jesus gave us to guide us in prayer are words of submission to our king. So let us speak them as citizens of the kingdom of a forgiving God. So if you would, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's spend just a few moments with God now. Thank him for his forgiveness and ask his help in giving that forgiveness away to those who need it from us.
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, as we hear that prayer of David today, we confess that we struggle with forgiving even though we know that it's offensive to you. So we ask that you would lead us, that you would lead us to forgiveness of others as you've given us forgiveness. Help us to give grace away. Help us to give mercy away. Help us to pray blessing upon those who have cursed us, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to turn the other cheek, to leave vengeance up to you because you've promised to repay. And more than that, God, to pray for our, uh, those who have offended us so that they don't have to face your wrath, so that they don't have to receive that just judgment, so that they can receive grace and mercy just as we have. God, have mercy on our enemies. God, help us to give grace away. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.